I'm going to speak this morning about three only slightly related topics. One of them is about the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts that God gives to His church to allow it to accomplish its mission. Another is about the jobs that we have in the church. And in an active church, there are many jobs. In this church, there are more jobs than there are people, which means a number of people here have many jobs. And then I'm going to speak for a brief period about homosexuality, an issue that is current right now in society, in the world, in politics. And because it's prevalent enough, I suppose there's not, there are not many of us here that do not know someone that practices or is tempted to practice homosexuality. We ought as a church to know how to relate to that. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12 was our scripture reading. It still is our scripture reading. And I want us to observe a few ideas in that passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and looking at verse 28. And God has set some in the church. When we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, who's doing the giving? You know, God is the one doing the giving by his spirit. The gifts that you or I have, we didn't give to ourselves. God puts those gifts in the church. There are apostles, and it says that they're first. And that's because the church is built on a foundation of apostles and prophets. That foundation is essential for you and I, because otherwise we would not know what was true. I mean, God has given us a foundation so we can know what is so. And apostles and prophets, they're the ones who've written the New Testament. It's first apostles and secondarily prophets. Then it says, thirdly, teachers. Teachers are not the same source of authority as apostles and prophets. The Bible does not say the church is built on apostles, prophets, and teachers. I mean, apostles are inspired so that what they say or what they write for us is true. Prophets, what they write is true. But what teachers teach is a good mixture of truth and not so much truth. Do you know that by experience from the teachers you've known in your life, that there's a good mix? I don't mean a good mix, meaning that it's not a bad mix. I just mean that God never intended that you would trust me the way you should trust an apostle. He never intended that you would trust, we would trust each other as teachers the way we would trust the Bible. After those first three, there are some that aren't given any particular order. There are miracles, gifts, helps, and gifts of healing, helps, governments. <clears throat> and when it mentions tongues, it's very careful to say diversities of tongues. Do you see it there? as if there are more than one language that has been given to the church as a help. And then comes the question, verse 29, that we ought to answer. Are, is everyone an apostle? No. Is everyone a prophet? No. Are all teachers? No. That comforts some people, I know. Are all workers of miracles? No. Have all the gifts of healing? No. Now, I'm adding the word no, but I think you can see that it's implied. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But covet earnestly the best gifts. Is it appropriate for you to desire spiritual gifts? 
It is. And is it appropriate for you even to evaluate in your own mind which gifts are more value than others? It must be appropriate because it says you're to covet which kind of gifts? It says the best ones, right? Covet earnestly the best gifts. But are the best gifts the best thing? And the answer to that question is no. The best gifts are not the best thing. Do you see the very last part of this chapter? that I show unto you a more excellent way. Do you see that in verse 31? That more excellent way is love. I'm not speaking about that really directly in the message this morning, but I want you to understand that while the gifts of the Spirit are precious, while some of them have authority, while they help us do so much, not any of them or all of them together are so likely to help you get something done, as is love. Faith works by love, and that is what accomplishes, it's what endures. It's the subject of chapter 13, and again, we're not looking at that today. But this brings me to my second point. Gifts are precious and and special. But suppose that in our church, someone stands up this afternoon, or even while I'm speaking right now, let's suppose this afternoon instead. Suppose someone stands up and says that God has given them such and such a spiritual gift. Maybe that they are an apostle or a prophet or are gifted as a teacher or some other spiritual gift. Are you and I then obligated to trust them? Please don't say yes, because the Bible teaches that there are spurious gifts. Even if you don't know the word spurious, you know it now, don't you? There are false gifts. There are people who think they have gifts from God, which in fact are simply being tricked by the devil. They have supernatural experiences that they associate with God, but in fact come from another source. Maybe we should look at evidence of that. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and looking at verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out devils? And in your name done many wonderful works. That is, they have been prophets, they've had the gifts of healing. Now the question is, was it the Lord Jesus that was working in them when they were prophets and had the gifts of healing? Look at verse 23. And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work lawlessness. If my first thought was that there are a variety of useful gifts in the church, the second thought is that there are also spurious gifts. And that the fact that someone has a gift is no evidence that we ought to trust him. In fact, it's not even evidence that we should give him a job in the church. In fact, right here in Arkadelphia, if you stand up this afternoon and say that you are a prophet, the chance of being given a job in this church has just gone down a long ways. 
because we do not think that just because someone claims to have a spiritual gift, that in fact they ought to be given a job, since there are in fact spurious gifts. But let me take that idea a step further. We have in our church some new converts. Uh, The two I'm thinking of right now, I'm thinking of Maya and of Chris, they're not here. I think because of spring break, they're probably visiting their family in uh, Hope and in Little Rock, two opposite directions from here. You know, Chris is a pretty typical new convert in some ways. Many new converts show lots of energy, lots of zeal, lots of evidence of their consecration. Do you agree Chris shows that? Yes. Suppose someone shows a great deal of talent and skill, energy and devotion. Is that a reason that we ought to give them a position, say, as an overseer in the church? The Bible addresses this question, too. It does it in 1 Timothy. Turn to 1 Timothy. Well, I see if I can find it. 1 Timothy chapter... I was worried. Oh, it's chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. Speaking of who should be in one of those positions, it says, not a novice. That's 1 Timothy 3, 6. Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So here you have a new convert. And what is the danger to him if you give him too much responsibility too quickly? Do you think new converts are immune from spiritual danger? Certainly not. And so as a kindness to people with small Christian experience, no matter how much zeal and energy they show, we're going to pay attention to the Bible qualifications for spiritual responsibility. We're not going to put someone in that position too soon. Look down at verse 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-minded, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. And look at verse 10. And let these also first be, what does it say? Proved or tested. Then let them use the office of a deacon. Now the word office here, maybe you don't hear it used too much that way anymore. It doesn't mean like where you have your desk. Office here is just another way of saying the word job. The office of deacon is the job of deacon. The office of elder is the job of elder. Do you follow me with what I'm trying to say? And before someone has the job of elder or the job of deacon, they should have sufficient experience in testing so that we know that they're ready for those responsibilities. I'm mentioning this to you because I perceive a real danger. And that is, as a church, when we go to put people in spiritual responsibilities, we might do it on the basis of their gifts or their energy or their zeal, when in fact there are some other qualifications that we ought to keep in mind. It's possible that we could do harm to someone because we do not pay attention to the qualifications. I'm not going to go through all the qualifications, but you find them in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus chapter 1. Some of those qualifications relate to the issue of gender, for example, and are things that we've talked about here in prayer meeting. We've talked about even on our church board, some of those things. 
What do you make then of the spiritual energy and zeal and gifts that a young convert may show? You can acknowledge them for what they are. Can someone receive a spiritual gift at conversion? Why, in fact, in the book of Acts, in Acts 19, for example, when Paul encounters some of these men who've been baptized, he asks them, what were you baptized to? And they say, in the name of Jesus. And he says, well, what about, well, they said the baptism of John is what they said. And he said, well, what about the spirit? They said, we haven't even heard whether there be a spirit. That's when he asked, what were you, into what were you baptized? So he baptized them as Jesus described, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we can only imagine he followed the directions. And then it says that the Spirit was poured out upon them, and there's evidence right there in Acts 19 that they were given gifts. That they were given gifts right at baptism. That happens in several other places in Acts. People are baptized and they're given gifts. It's not always so that gifts are only given at baptism. Uh, in fact, Look at 1 Timothy 4. You're close to there. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14. Paul said to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the... Well, you've never seen that word before, but it means the elders, the overseers. In other words, there was a time in Timothy's life when he was given the position of an elder or an overseer, a bishop, and the other overseers laid their hands on him and prayed for him. And did that make a gift in his life in terms of giftedness? Did he receive a gift at that point? Verse 14 says he did. And that makes sense because God gives the church gifts because the church needs gifts. He gives you spiritual gifts because you need them to do the work. And it's possible when you're given higher responsibilities that he would give you the gifts that match those responsibilities. I say it's possible, I'll say it's probable, because in the Old Testament, frequently, when God gives men responsibilities, he gives them spiritual gifts to match those. I'm thinking right now about Joshua. Joshua was a man filled with the Spirit even before he began working with Moses. But when he became the leader in Moses' place, he was filled again with the Spirit. That is, when he had more responsibility, God gave him more gifts. And that's the normal way God works with gifts. He gives us gifts that match our responsibilities. If you understand that, you would see how backwards it is to give someone responsibilities just because you perceive they have the gifts. When in fact, frequently, God gives the gifts necessary to match the responsibilities. Well, let me say that another way. I think I might have lost you. God chooses who receives the gifts. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 that he distributes the gifts to every individual as he sees fit. But who decides the church jobs? Do you know the church decides the church jobs? The church is the one that decides who's going to be the deacon, the Sabbath school teacher, to be the overseer. The church decides. And since God decides who receives the gifts, he's never given anywhere the qualifications for who should have the gifts. Because he's the one who gives the gifts. But when it comes to church offices, he's given the qualifications. He's told us what to look for. Who should, who should not. What we should see, what we shouldn't see. 
He's, give, he's even told us about their family, about their character, about their reputation. He's given us a lot of information. He said, only this kind of person should be in that responsible position. And then when we choose someone who matches those qualifications, then God may give that person special gifts so they can effectively carry out their responsibilities. It would be the devil who would reason backwards and say, since this otherwise unqualified person has the gifts, therefore he or she must be given the responsibilities. You don't want to use the gifts to undermine the Spirit's counsel about who should have the jobs. I think I've said this three or four ways. I'll try one more time and move on to something else. It's important for this church that right people have the jobs. And it's important for the church that the church be filled with spiritual gifts. But all of us can have the spiritual gifts. New converts, all of us can have spiritual gifts. Everyone can become useful. We could even have in our church several people who are like fathers and mothers in Israel. People who take care, and when they see someone hurting, they take an interest. And when they see someone who needs assistance, they give assistance. There could be a number of those people in the church, call those pastors. Pastor is just an old English word for a shepherd. There could be many shepherds, but only the ones that meet the qualifications should be given the job of overseer. Who chooses the gifts? The spirit. Who chooses the jobs? The church. Does the church just choose the job according to its own imagination? No, it's been given qualifications. All right, I have said that sufficiently. Right now in South Africa, there's a meeting going on of the leaders of our denomination. Uh, Somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 persons are there, 20 or more from each one of the 13 divisions have convened in South Africa. And they're there to talk about a particular issue. Uh, they're talking about homosexuality. They met, I think yesterday was the time when they began convening. They're there for several more days. And one of my friends is there presenting. His name is Wayne Blakely. I say he's my friend, but I only met him two weeks ago, or three. I'll show you his picture. That's a, you can see that picture with him, with his Dalmatian, Wayne Blakely. Uh, Wayne Blakely has lived for more than 30 years of his life as a practicing gay person, as a homosexual man. He has, since that time, found the Lord. He has become a, a celibate person, living a pure Christian life and speaking to people about how to deal with their... He's not really speaking to you and I about how to deal with someone else, but he's speaking to those who themselves have those homosexual or same gender attractions about how they can be victorious. Uh, Wayne has a couple ideas that I think are relevant to all of us with whatever sins we struggle with. I want to talk to you about those, but I'm showing you this because someone might, might want to see this afterwards. I think it could be useful if you know someone who struggles with those kind of thoughts or feelings, you ought to know about some resources that are available. 
One of the ideas that Wayne speaks of is the difference between temptation and sin. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James 1 in verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his, what does it say? His own desires and enticed. Every man is tempted? Yes, indeed. Every person is tempted. Everyone's tempted more or less the same way. We're all tempted when our desires pull us a certain direction. If you are a married woman and you feel an attraction towards a man who is not your husband, that attraction is a temptation. That is your desires pulling on you. And what does James 1.14 call that desire? That pulls you the wrong way? Doesn't it call it a temptation? Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own desires. The temptation is not the sin. The temptation is the test. And you can overcome the devil when you are tempted. So that when you have that attraction, you don't have to surrender to it. You don't have to fantasize about it or do something relevant to it. The, the attraction doesn't make you flirt. It doesn't cause you to do something inappropriate. It pushes you that way. But if you resist the temptation, if you resist the desire, you can maintain purity despite the temptation. Now, why is it that we have those kind of attractions? When I say those kind, I don't just mean attractions to immorality. I mean attractions to any type of sin. Attraction to lie or to cheat or to, I mean any type of attraction. Why do we have them? There could be a thousand reasons you could list, but I think you can divide them pretty neatly into two categories. Reasons related to your inheritance, your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and Uncle Noah, and then reasons related to your own experience in life and your own decisions. You have inherited reasons that you have bad attractions, and you have cultivated reasons or experiential reasons why you have those bad attractions. Because of the way your parents have lived, you may have much stronger appetites in relation to food than some people do. And because of the way you were raised as a child, you may have stronger appetites related to food than some people do. And because of the decisions you've made as an adult, you might have stronger temptations in the realm of eating than some people do. Really, you both are relevant to our life, but neither are inheritance nor our experience, nor our decisions change temptation into sin. They only strengthen its power. And when you, by the grace of God, resist temptation, you are victorious no matter what that temptation is. Now what I'm saying about diet or about infidelity is also true about homosexuality. There are more than one reason that someone could have a same gender attraction. It could be because of foolish choices they've made. It could be because of the way they were raised when they were young. 
For example, studies have shown that if you're raised without a dad, the chance of you having these kind of attractions is much higher, for example. And it could be because of the way that your ancestors have lived. There could be a number of reasons that you have those attractions. But are those attractions sin? No, those attractions are temptation to sin. And when you resist them, you're doing the same thing any other person does when he resists his temptations. Paul specifically says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, some of you were, and he describes many sinful ways, and among them are practicing homosexuals, practicing gay persons. He says, some of you are that way, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are cleansed. The gospel can do that for any type of sin. Another distinction that Wayne makes in his sharing has to do with identity. When a person calls himself homosexual merely because he has those attractions, he's doing something similar to you calling yourself an adulterer because you have an attraction to someone who's not your spouse. But you're not an adulterer simply because of an attraction. You're an adulterer when you give in to that attraction either in your mind or with your practice. Wayne says that you should not consider yourself a homosexual on the basis of that attraction. You can acknowledge that you have those kind of attractions without submitting to them. And you can consider yourself a Christian. Not consider yourself a sinner because you're attracted, but consider yourself a Christian because you're victorious over your attractions. Just as it is a inappropriate to identify yourself with your temptations, it's inappropriate for someone who's trying to live a Christian life to identify himself with his temptations. I think Wayne would say it differently, but I'm not him. I can only say it the way it comes out of my mouth. But I think he has two good points. We don't want to identify ourselves with our, sin, our sinful attractions and we don't want to surrender to our sinful attractions. And we don't want to treat people in any way uh, as if their attractions themselves make them sinful or unclean. <clears throat> it's not their attractions, but they're surrendering to those attractions. Now I want to come back to the idea of gifts and jobs. Because here in Arkadelphia, we have a lot of jobs. In fact, I hope a lot of you become members here so that we have more people among whom to spread the jobs. That's not the only reason I want you to be here. But when God gives us spiritual gifts, those spiritual gifts create responsibilities even if no one ever gives us a job. Even if no one gives you a job, you still have, even if no one gives me a job, I still have spiritual responsibilities. I have responsibilities to use the gifts that have been given me. In politics right now, there's an issue related to religious freedom coming up. And I will be done in four minutes if someone's getting anxious who's under the age of one. Or is it two? One. Uh, in politics, it has been well established that racism is illegal. That is, if I'm prejudiced against you so that I do not 
serve you or give you privileges or opportunities because of your skin color, you in fact can hold me responsible by the laws of this nation. It is illegal to be prejudiced in a racial way. And in a similar way, at least in the job market, it's illegal to be prejudiced on the basis of gender. To, to hire a man and a woman for two equal jobs and to pay the man more, that is against the law. Well, I can see the sense of those laws. The Bible indicates, for example, in Acts 17, that we're all created of one blood. Racism certainly has no decent basis in Scripture. God has made us all of one blood to dwell on the face of the earth. And in fact, it's true that in terms of, of remuneration, equal work ought to lead to equal pay. But in our court system today, a new right is, is being tested, even at the Supreme Court, this coming week. And that is, is it against the law to be prejudiced or show prejudice against someone on the basis of their uh, homosexual orientation. I don't know what's going to come of that. If our schools are held accountable, you know, if our schools refuse to accept black people, they'd be in big trouble. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? Well, what if our schools refuse to hire uh, homosexual teachers, practicing homosexual teachers? What if, we, what if, because of our values, we end up taking a position that becomes illegal? Do you understand what I'm talking about? I want you to just know that in your mind, you should not allow the view of the state to color your own. That racism is wicked. And gender discrimination in the job place is wicked. But when it comes to the roles in the church, the Bible gives our marching orders. And we have no right to budge from them. And when it comes to the issue of submitting to homosexual attractions and living with that lifestyle... The Bible does not give the church the option to say it's fine with us either way. We have to hold up a position, even if that means that we lose a lot. Even if it means that we suffer to some degree. But we must not, brothers and sisters, allow that pressure to push us too far. In standing up for our rights to be conscientious, we must not allow ourselves to, to be pushed to the point where we speak about the people who have those tendencies or temptations as if we don't have love or concern or help or hope for them. We can't let the state determine our agenda any more than we can let spurious gifts determine our, did I say agenda? I meant our agenda. Then we let spurious gifts determine our agenda. We have qualifications for office. They're in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. We have a description of what is acceptable morality. You can find that in Malachi 3. You can find that in Exodus 20. You can find it in Acts 13. You can find it in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. You can find the issue of morality settled here. 
And what this book says is what we say. It is our foundation of apostles and prophets. And the last thought, I think I went over my four minutes. My last thought is that if you want more spiritual gifts, be open to receive jobs in the church. Be open to receive responsibilities and know that God will give you what you need to carry out the responsibilities that you accept. Cover earnestly the best gifts, accept the jobs, and that's how the church can grow. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.